Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast, an unofficial podcast about Apple created by members of the Ask Different community. I'm Kyle Cronin. Joining me today is Jason Sells. What's going on, Jason? Afternoon, Kyle, and a very special and happy day it is. Yeah, it's uh, WWDC Day, which is uh, always <laughs> it's always a very fun day to uh, sort of keep up with the live blogs and see all the latest stuff that Apple announces and there was a lot today, so we've we definitely got our work cut out for us for, for the next hour or so. It's like the second Christmas of the year. You have to figure out all the ways that you're going to spend money, except this time it's probably for yourself and not other people. Exactly, which in some <laughs> ways makes it better than Christmas because you're able to buy yourself exactly what you want. <laughs> yeah. And none of the pain of wrapping and tape and all the rest. Exactly. So I just want to get right into it because there's just so much stuff. Um, so... At WWDC, they basically had uh, three main topics that they wanted to talk about. Um, the next version of Mac OS X, which is uh, 10.7 Lion. Uh, the next version of iOS, iOS 5. And they also wanted to unveil their latest uh, cloud offering called iCloud, which is sort of, well, we'll get to exactly what it is, but uh, it sort of unifies uh, a bunch of other online services and offerings that they've had in the past. So getting right down to brass tacks, we've got uh, 10 new features that they mentioned, or yeah, 10 new features um, that were highlighted in the presentation about Lion. Um, And just number one, multi-touch gestures. Um, Using your your, your trackpad on your laptop or like a magic trackpad, uh, there are now multiple gestures that are supported by the operating system, uh, double tap, um, or pinch expand to, uh, to zoom a page. You can use a two finger swipe. Uh, and it, it's interesting that, uh, when you're actually doing the scrolling, that the scroll bars don't appear unless you're actually, you're actually doing the scrolling. Uh, there's the three finger swipes to invoke, uh, mission control, four fingers to invoke uh, launch pad. We'll talk more about those later on. I'm kind of ambivalent about multi-touch gestures personally because I have a, uh, Mac, a MacBook Pro and the only multi-touch gesture that I use is the two-finger scroll. And that's simply because that's the only way to scroll on the trackpad. I don't do any of the of the fancy uh, multi-finger gestures for anything, you know, like the um, rotating or anything. I just, I find it easier just to use the, the software, um, the, the menu controls for those. Did you have any? Do you have any um, thoughts on on multi-touch gestures, Jason? Yeah, a lot of this is going to really be up up to the implementation. I mean, one of the one of the one of the examples that I rely on in order to showcase how poorly it's done, uh, how poorly it can be done, is Adobe's implementation of allowing the rotation gesture, the two finger rotation gesture, to take place in their Photoshop applications. Uh, Preview kind of does this to a lesser extent, if I recall correctly, but I remember this being particularly painful with uh, Photoshop when I was helping somebody with something. Uh, Basically, you have an open document, you have your two fingers on a trackpad, and you rotate either clockwise or counterclockwise, and it rotates the entire canvas in that particular direction. It's a reasonable idea in theory, but... The two things that are negative to it is that it's very touchy. The sensitivity that they set on whatever they're doing to actually go in with that gesture is trivial to invoke. And then suddenly you have a picture rotated when you were just trying to perhaps uh, click with one finger and drag with another. And it it, it first read that click and drag as a, as two fingers moving. It, it was very imperfect. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to actually think about multi-stretch gestures that you actually ha- have used. Um, I know a lot of them come reasonably naturally to me, um, and that's predominantly because I you, I have an iPhone that I use, I have an iPad that I use, and a lot of them, whenever whenever they make a logical extension in a desktop operating system, it, team, it seems to flow really well. Um, there's an application out there called Scroll Reverser uh, when the news that Lion was going to be very iOS-style when they when Apple had the back to my Mac back to the Mac uh, presentation some time ago, I started using Scroll Reverser just to see how I could get used to it in a daily basis with scroll scrolling up, pushing the content down, scrolling down, pushing the content up. It was reasonable, but the big contrast right now is something that a few chatters were talking about. In that, when I'm at work, I have an external. I have my laptop lid closed. I have an external display, mouse, and keyboard. That external key. That external mouse is a Magic Mouse, which, as we know, is a touch-sensitive surface. But it's not. It's only, I believe, to an extent of two fingers is supported by the OS. Though things like Better Touch Tool and whatnot can do a little bit more. But there's certain, whenever I have it externally, if I'm using anybody else's mouse with a standard scroller, with a standard wheel, then those gestures, that opposite direction becomes really confusing. And I think that's just more the associated muscle memory of a wheel scrolling with a direction where the actual act of pushing when there's nothing there, the opposite direction, it tends to make sense. This kind of reminds me of... um... For, for game controllers in 3D environments, there's basically two ways of implementing the up, down, left, right. Um, there's one where, like, if you push the joystick up, the camera physically pans up, push the joystick down, and it physically pans down. And then there's the other one, which is sort of, it's kind of like um, the control stick in an aircraft, where if you pull down, that the view goes up, and, and if you push, the view goes down. And for me, I could never get used to the, you know, if you push it up, the screen goes up. To me, it felt more natural to sort of view the joystick as a way of moving your your end of a, like a camera, and that using the you know pushing down goes up, pushing up goes down. Um, felt more natural to me, and I think that uh, the the way that the scrolling is going to be sort of reversed in line is actually going to make that more natural for from people as well, especially coming from the iPad and the iPod touch and the iphone and stuff it's it'll it'll be a good way of making all the devices identical um people are going to complain and that's why it is a preference at least as of i believe the either the second or the third line developer preview it is an option in the mouse settings whether or not you want scroll reversed or not i'm probably going to leave it at default and work with it and try to use these gestures as much as possible one of the downsides that i definitely know is that uh, to the to the best of my knowledge, the last time that I used, we, we have a Magic Trackpad, and I paired it with my uh, laptop just to kind of play around with it, and the trackpad settings were completely default on the Magic Track, on the external trackpad, with no ways of changing it. They were default so that the tracking was really slow, the two-finger configurations and whatnot wouldn't work, and I had to rely on the internal trackpad. That works, except I need to figure out how it how it may work again when I'm at work with all of these external utilities if using the external if using the trackpad externally with the lid closed will bring all my settings to that one or if it's just some bug that Apple needs to work out in the OS 
Yeah, I'm guessing that uh, Lion will definitely include more comprehensive trackpad support and multiple trackpads and switching trackpads and stuff yeah. like that. And the last bit it was the fact that they were talking about wondering whether mouse, uh, Apple mice are going to go away entirely and if all new computers will come with a magic trackpad, period. I could definitely see them going with that, at least for the default. Um, but I hope that they definitely support them using all these new features in Lion uh, with a mouse because I have a mouse that I really like and I intend to keep using it for a long, long time. Yeah, I don't really want to get bogged down on multi-touch because there's a ton of stuff. Um, so the second one for Lion is full-screen apps. And basically all this does is it's a button or a gesture or something that will enable you to full-screen any app in the system. And all of Apple's apps are going to support this and I'm assuming that... Uh, they're going to encourage developers to support this as well um, with all their apps. They they implemented this pretty well from the picture that we saw um, from the details that we could actually gather from the coverage today in that if you take, for example, YouTube and flash animations as general when they go full screen, you cannot do anything else anywhere else because it's taken over the screen. It's really taken over the entirety of the input and output. I know there was some time when I had a second monitor and I hit full screen on a flash on a flash video and the second screen just basically disappeared it was purely black and if i clicked in there or tried to move something to it it would exit full screen of the flash of the flash application what this full screen appears to be to me is just removing the chrome and maximizing the content space so that it runs as an application hiding also uh, triggering the dock and i think the menu bar was hidden as well but it's just a it's just a view size it's not a like a separate it's not an abstraction like flash does it that blocks you from doing anyone uh, anything else so it seems like when you have an external monitor in a full screen situation you will be able to have two full screen apps on each screens and work with them independently with the other one, with one not affecting the other yeah um full screen it it's nice, but it, it, the the real power uh, comes when you combine it with um, number three, mission control, where it's basically unified expose and spaces. So when you do full screen an app, that that is essentially takes up one space. And then when you go into mission control, it's the the three finger swipe down um, that you have basically a view of all your spaces on the top. And then you also have a view of all your non-full-screened applications and just general stuff on your desktop in the center. And you can actually uh, move applications between spaces and create new spaces and delete spaces and stuff. It looks very powerful. And I'm interested to see um, how effective it'll be uh, once I can actually get my hands on it because I don't use spaces at all in Mac OS X. Uh, in fact, I think I have them enabled, but uh, I always find like whenever I... I accidentally hold my mouse too far uh with a when i'm dragging a window on one side of my screen and it'll pop into another space and that's never what i want to do yeah the the ability for spaces to become a lot less physical and permanent and become more abstract into whatever grouping you want to make is going to be it's going to be wonderful the demo looked amazing yeah uh i'm really looking forward to that so number four mac app store so i'm sure everyone that has a mac that's running snow leopard has been able to try out the Mac App Store that's been out for the past few months. It's it's pretty slick. It you know it allows you to just plug in your iTunes credentials and just buy apps directly through the system. It automatically downloads and installs them and handles the updates and stuff. And it looks like they're going to be expanding this 
and adding in like in-app purchases and push notifications and um, there's also one other thing that's really handy uh, binary delta updates <laughs> and the crowd goes wild uh, that this means that the install Xcode 4 is going to die and Xcode itself is going to be distributed. And, you know, those Delta updates shouldn't be more than a couple hundred megs in theory and not four gigs every single time. Um, and even you can even foresee them doing something a little differently. If they had done this prior to Lion, they could have done this to seed the Lion developer betas a little bit easier. But, you know, they're obviously working towards these improvements in the first place. So one of them has to come first. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. And also, it's just sort of as a side note, uh, developers are seeing increased revenue from putting their applications in the Mac App Store. Uh, so like Pixelmator, for example, they made a million dollars in the first 20 days of having their app in the App Store. And that so. was at a price point of 40 bucks when they first listed it, if I recall correctly. It was either 30 or 40 bucks. I think actually they, they're, they want to sell it for like... Sixty dollars, like fifty nine ninety nine, and they had listed it in the App Store for a special price of twenty nine ninety nine, sort of an introductory kind of price. And um, a while ago, I think it was like last month or something like that, it actually went back up to fifty nine ninety nine, and I was like, oh man, I missed my opportunity <laughs> to buy it. But um, they announced on their blog a few days ago that you know they're preparing for um, Pixelmator two, and they are have brought back that special pricing and that if you do buy the the you know version of pixelmator in the app store for 29.99 that you will also get a free upgrade to the next version of pixelmator so if anyone's looking for you know an app that uh, you can use for editing images and stuff on your mac then that's definitely it's a very strong contender and not to delve too much into the detail of it but pixelmator is a beautiful and quick app and if you're one of those people that seeks out photoshop elements or photoshop as a whole and not so much the rest of the suite check out pixelmator because it's a very very well produced app it's very it's native it's uh, very integrated it just works wonderfully yeah so number five, Launchpad, and this is basically um, a, a a Mac version of the iOS home screen kind of thing, where you've got just all your apps on the home screen. You're able to arrange them in any order you like. You've got the, the folders, and uh, you can delete stuff, whatever. Um, and it's just basically, it's a Mac version of that where anytime you download an app through the App Store or even if you just sort of copy it to your computer, uh, the Launchpad is somehow knows about it and it just puts it in, in there. And it makes, it makes it easier for people to not have to deal with exactly where their applications are living. So it just makes, it's one of those things that, you know, coming in from iOS makes it a little easier for people to, to use the system. It's kind of interesting that they chose to invoke it the same way that they do with the uh, developer-unlocked versions of uh, iOS devices and that the gesture to bring it up is a four-finger pinch inward, and that'll it, that'll bring up a grid of all of your applications and whatnot. Not much to say. We know it from iOS. It's kind of kind of bulky, kind of unorganized in my opinion. At least Finder allows you to constrict the apps to a specific style and layout and whatnot. But it's there, and I'm sure a lot of plenty of people will find use for it, especially those that stick their applications folder in their dock. Yeah, I'm I'm actually one of those people. Um, I've got my applications folder right there. <laughs> <laughs> Launchers, launchers uh, forever. Exactly. Well, I've been using the you know command space 
using Spotlight to find my, you know, quickly launch apps. That's been good. Um, but I think Launch Bar, it, it'll be interesting. You can sort of have different pages for different kinds of apps and stuff. So the next one is Resume. Um, basically, what this does is um, I'm not sure if this requires application support or not, but Lion is now capable of storing your entire application state and being able to relaunch the application and restoring that state. Um, so what you can do is you you know you can be working on a, a document, then you could restart your computer, and then when you when you come back from restart um, and your your program opens back up, you you know you're exactly where you left off. You know your cursor's in the same spot, you know all that stuff. And so a few episodes ago, I was talking about something that the Engadget team had talked about, and that that's of course the continuous client and being able to sort of pick up where you left off on on you know multiple machines and stuff like that. And while this doesn't this this doesn't have any cross computer support. Um, what this does is this enables you to uh, retain the state of of stuff that you were doing on your computer. You know, across reboots, um, across application quits and restarts and stuff like that. So it it's 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 quite a, a powerful feature. Yeah, this is exactly what I was alluding to during that very same segment, and I'm actually of the opinion that this information is supported in the application but is saved in a document level or perhaps there's maybe some meta pointer beyond that um but i i personally I, i'd love to see this in action but i'm kind of of the opinion that if you sync the document and uh, again the exact example that we used is that this information is being stored into the document continually and if you sync it across your dropbox to another computer and open it with the same application you're going to get that same state back out I have a hunch that that's actually going to be the way this plays out, especially considering the fact that the granularity of state is even text that's actively highlighted and not just where the cursor is and the applications that are open uh, with regard to that application, but the text that's highlighted, which also presumably means that the entire undo history is going to be in there. Uh, that this This is going to be wonderful. I don't know. I'm kind of... I don't actually... <sighs> I suspect that it's actually not saved in the actual file um, and that it is the application just because there are a lot of applications that don't necessarily save files and that you still want to be able to restore the state of them. Uh, I don't know. Presumably they still have some kind of... There is still a file even if it's not obviously represented to the user. In the case of an office editing application like those of iWork, there's the document that you're editing, true. But applications don't get modified to save... uh, What's an analog I can draw? Like old school cartridge video game systems. You don't write back to the application itself. You have something external to it. You have some state file that has all of your information in it. And it's it is a document. It's just not one that's obviously aware to you. Uh, I, I I think that it's going to be document geared, and games will feature this capability as well as soon as the SDK and whatnot opens for them to be able to do it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So it's definitely stored somewhere, and it's definitely stored um, distinct from the actual binary of the application. And if you know where it's stored, then in theory, you could be able to sync it across multiple computers, which which would be a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. So the next two uh, are sort of similar. Um, they're autosave and versions. So basically, what autosave does is um, in in Lion, 
at least from Apple's apps, there's no concept of actually saving a file anymore. Whatever you do is saved automatically. And this is really powerful in that, you know, you don't get those calls from your parents, you know, that say, oh, you know, could you, could, can you restore <laughs> this file for me? I, I was working on it, my computer crashed, and I didn't save it. Um, this, this handles all of that. And there's also um, the concern that if you didn't want to save something that, you know, how would you prevent it from changing the file? Well, the answer is, of course, versions. Uh, if, you, if you don't want something to be saved, you can actually lock it. Or if, if there was a change that you didn't want to make, you can actually go back to a previous version of the file. So it's like, it's like an undo feature that exists as part of the actual file itself, which is a very powerful notion. Um, because typically what happens is, you know, you'll open up something but you, and you've got your undo, but once you save the file and close the program then you open it back up, there's no undo. So what this does is this basically, you know, it's like a persistent undo. It's like a resume undo kind of thing, which is, which is very powerful. And uh, this also integrates uh, in, in sort of a, um, a time machine kind of interface where you can actually see past versions of your documents as you go back in time. It's uh, and and you can even like open past versions, copy stuff through. It's yeah, it's quite a quite a powerful feature. I don't remember if Apple actually spoke on the granularity of whether the saves are going to be uh, more percentage change content based, or if they're time based, or possibly a combination of it. It's just certain thresholds that they cross. Um, the demo was really fun to be able to see. The, uh, from a from a ty- typography standpoint that I've kind of learned lately, it was very cool to see one version of the document with the text wrapped around the picture and then one more traditionally flowed on the left side of the picture and the picture expanded, kind of more uh, newspaper, newspaper style, basically, hanging around the picture itself. Uh, exactly as you said, it's turning the undo into document level and being maintained in the uh, being maintained alongside the document itself. And presumably for any format, and not just those that are designed to stuff all of this information into the file itself. Well, I think that you definitely have to have application support for this, but uh, you do have the benefit that um, you don't have to encode in your application uh, the concept of a version. Um, all you basically, well, I, I shouldn't say this because I'm not a, an Apple developer, and they just announced it, and you know new information may come to light, but it seems to me that uh, in order to implement this, all the developer would really need to do is to tell the operating system whenever the document being worked on has been changed by the user. And then um, the operating system can then look at that information, compute a delta, and automatically save that. And and basically the operating system can basically handle all that stuff. The best part of it is the fact that they explicitly called out that what you see on the file system, so for things like sharing via Dropbox or picking the file out and emailing it, whatever you see on the file system is the latest version of that file. It is the file itself with the latest modifications you've made. Uh, and we don't we don't know the details of the interface yet in terms of how you invoke it on document level, if it has to be done in the application, if it's done something like Time Machine where you're viewing the folder, you have the file selected, you click a specific icon and it takes us back. We don't know that yet, but we do know that the, the changes are going to be happening behind the scenes because the files as they are are always going to be the latest version uh, suitable for suitable for sharing. And that's exactly that's sp- sp- explicitly one of the points they called out. 
Yeah, well, that's that was one of the, the things. Though. On the slide, it says the sharing, it just shares the latest version, mm-hmm. which means to me that none of the actual versioning information is stored in the file itself. And so when you copy that to you know, uh, an external drive or you sync that up to Dropbox, that, there, that the history information is not present in that file. And I'm actually kind of concerned about how Dropbox is going to handle this because I believe when a file is updated, it just issues a delete for the old file on the system and it just copies the new file back on. And if that if that's what happens, then uh, all that history information that you know for the autosaves and stuff will be removed because the operating system thinks that the file is being removed. I don't know. Basically, means that they're that the. Uh, prevalence of symlinks is going to be a lot more significant. Oh well, we usually do folders as a whole, not not uh, files as a whole. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't really think at first. I thought you were just going to kind of concern. You were going to be kind of concerned that you had uh, backups of backups essentially. But I see exactly what you're saying that you could potentially lose state with everything as you do everything that you store in Dropbox. Yeah, I think it's something that Dropbox is just going to have to you know play nice with the operating system hooks and. And hopefully there's a way that they can sort of merge the functionality of the two. And, mm-hmm. you know, if they are able to do that successfully, then maybe you'll even be able to get all of your automatic history state information on all your Macs. Yeah, it's one of the things that's a shame that Dropbox is cross-platform because now they're going to have to have such a specific exception for the Mac OS world. Yeah. So number nine, AirDrop. This is actually a really cool feature. Um it's 2011, and when I want to, and when I have my computer, and I want to uh, put a file on someone else's computer, it's very cumbersome. I either have to email it to them, or I have to, you know, go on like Skype or some sort of instant messaging thing and send it to them. And you know, they have to be signed in, and they have to have an account and all and all that stuff. Or I have to have some sort of external drive. Uh, AirDrop basically, uh, what it does is, it detects all the computers on the network that support the airdrop protocol and it puts them in a it's it's a it's kind of like a circular view kind of thing with like little icons it's for, similar to the i i remember when i saw the interface i had a very big smack in the face of the what is it the t-mobile my faves interface that they oh that yeah, they used to advertise yeah some time ago yeah that came to mind as soon as i saw those pictures yeah that's actually a very good comparison yeah <laughs> um it, it'll break down if you know you've got 40 computers on the network that you want to airdrop to but uh, but yeah, it's just, you know, all you got to do is just, you know, drag it to the, the computer that you want to send it to. And then the other person will get a, a notification that says, you know, this person wants to send you this file and they just hit save and it's just done, all done wirelessly. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, it's been a long time coming, you know, mm-hmm. the ability to just send files directly from one computer to another. So I'm sure it was mostly for time reasons, but considering that this was a development conf- conference, they were... Uh, surprisingly scarce on details. Um, they they use the terminology peer-to-peer transfer. Not that that's a surprise. They're not expecting everybody to have a middle ground to broker the connection. Um, but what we don't know is if peer-to-peer means that there's some system daemon running that speaks BitTorrent, and that's going to be the way it is. Uh, uh, like like I'm like I've said a few times, and probably will continue to do so in this show. Uh, the the details remain to be seen, but they're going to be very interesting when they get here. Um, this is something that I'm going to love taking advantage of because both at work and at home with multiple devices, there is a 
there is a folder in your public directory called Dropbox, not to be confused with the application and service called Dropbox. But basically what it is is that you can connect to somebody's computer, connect to their public directory, and then drag. You can't go into their Dropbox, but you can drag a file into it, and it'll say, this will send the file to this person. You won't be able to see it. Okay, and you go ahead and do it. Um, there's a couple of little issues regarding this workflow and the first one is that connecting to somebody else's computer is kind of a tedious process to be honest because you have to hit finder hit shared hit the person's computer wait a couple seconds for the negotiation to happen click their username to access their home folder uh, or if the public folder is directly shared you click on that and then you go back to the file drag it in the dropbox say okay wait for it to transfer where this new airdrop workflow seems to be hit finder hit airdrop file to person's uh, computer name, done, as soon as both parties uh, accept it. Uh, it it's going to clean up things quite a bit. It's going to make things quite a bit easier. And it'll be, it'll be very obvious to them that this happened as well, because we've had a few instances at work where, they're, where somebody's asking for a file. Uh, they go seek out the person who sent it to them, and the person says, it's in your Dropbox. Just go look for it. I told <laughs> you I put it there. So, you know. Yeah, uh, it was actually interesting um, that you mentioned BitTorrent because that got me thinking, um, like, what if I want to send like a single file to 10 different computers? I wonder if Dropbox has, or sorry, AirDrop has a a feature where you're able, able to basically send it to as many computers as you want simultaneously. And if that is the case, then it would make sense to have some sort of peer-to-peer download kind of thing so that they don't all have to rely on the bandwidth from one computer over wireless of course it doesn't really make sense because uh you know you got the wireless interference and you know anyone that's using a wireless channel is preventing anyone else from transmitting on that channel but if you've got like a a wired network and you want to send a 10 gigabyte file to 10 computers uh it would make a lot of sense to be able to just um sort of shoot it out to all 10 of those computers and have uh, each of them work on downloading all the parts from each other and you I can see the technical implementation of that uh, just kind of in my mind thinking about how it may process it if you just take the file and repeatedly drag it to a bunch of other nodes but at the same time it's probably uh, I, I don't know I'm thinking it's probably peer-to-peer literally just one-to-one and not one-to-many like it's not going to be a bit torrent general broadcast if it is bit torn backed it's going to be a directed broadcast to the individual you're actively communicating with we'll see uh, again details remain to be seen yeah well if it's just one-to-one then there's no there's no reason to even do bit because it's just a regular tra- file transfer mm-hmm. yeah bit only makes sense if you're going to be um, distributing the same file to a lot of computers mm-hmm. and so the last item number 10 is uh, a revamped interface for mail I'm actually really excited about this because I had I had used Mail uh, for a, a long time and it was okay. I never really you know thoroughly liked it, but it was you know it was good enough for my purposes. But you know as I started relying more and more on Gmail specific features like labels and stuff, then uh, using Mail felt very limiting because it didn't have support for any of those features. Or if it did, you know it was sort of like you know, a label is an IMAP folder and, you know, you got to manage all this hierarchy of IMAP stuff. Um, well, with the revamped interface for mail, 
one of the features that they announced was labels. So it sort of remains to be seen whether or not those labels actually sync to Gmail accounts and if they have sort of native Gmail support for that stuff. But if they do, uh, it would be very compelling because the new interface for mail looks very good. Yeah, and it's ridiculously attractive. Yeah, some of the some of the um, little animations and stuff, like uh, they have a, a conversation view, and if you there's a little scrunched piece of paper, and if you want to see more of the conversation, you hit that, and it sort of unfolds, unscrunches itself, and you can see more of the conversation. It's just, it's very you know, delightful to use. Mm-hmm. The first thing that came to mind watching these slides was wide mail rest in peace. I've been I've relied on wide mail for probably a little bit upwards of a year right now. Um, the default mail interface is that you have your folders and your management on the left, you have your message and then uh, as the left half basically, and then on the right half you have a horizontal split where you have a top half uh, which is the list of messages and the bottom half which is content. Well, with the with the increasing aspect ratio of widescreen monitors, there's this plugin called WideMail that takes all of your folders and management on the far left, the middle, uh, the I guess left cor- uh, left third, the middle section becomes your message list, and the entire right section, which is by far the biggest column I have, dedicated to the entirety of the message. And with some particularly long messages and whatnot, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, no more. Uh, mail is turning into an iOS-style layout where you have the folders predominantly hidden until you call them out. Otherwise, you just have a list of messages, and then the majority of the screen is dedicated to the entirety of the conversation, the entirety of the message list for the thread, conversation, what have you, that you're going to call it. Um, the the entire list uh, presented in a very obvious manner and just looks wonderful. All of the same options, uh, removing quotes and whatnot, so that each conversation looks as clean, uh, each message in a conversation looks as absolutely clean as possible. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think actually you have your folders or labels or something across the top, so you're able to sort of click those and you have your message list on the left and then your actual message or conversation actually because it it does support conversations you've got your conversation sort of the the main area on the right hand side and the other two functional improvements that they were talking about was a little favorites bar which is not unlike a browser's uh, bookmarks bar that has a couple of preset filters in advance Uh, i think i think the initial one was flagged messages and i think i also saw an unread messages button and then it looked like you can start adding other criteria in there for search results, which leads us to the greatly improved search functionality of mail. Uh, the key to being that whenever you start typing something, it will pre-fill suggestions such as sender names and email topics. And then as you give it time to work out, it will, of course, search into message content. Um, but the best part of all is the fact that you can actually search on more than one attribute now. You can say, I want all messages from this person with a subject of lunch. And you'll get you'll be able to stack all of those and greatly refine your message searching, which is something that's been dearly lacking before today. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's a very solid uh, increase. And, you know, those 10 features, I think, are uh, definitely uh, important enough that uh, <laughs> a lot of people are going to want to upgrade. It's it's more than just a minor um increase like the like the snow leopard uh upgrade was for leopard 
Yeah, so. people were talking about how Leopard to Snow Leopard was evolutionary and necessary, dropping support for uh, PowerPC binaries, PowerPC power architectures, and 30 bucks got you really nothing terribly big on the front end. That's also why Apple took Leopard and turned it into Snow Leopard instead of going with an entirely different name, uh, an entirely different name for this go-around. But this, just this on its face alone, uh, Snow Leopard to Lion, Leopard to Snow Leopard was evolutionary, and Snow Leopard to Lion is definitely already looking revolutionary. Just so many improvements in so many ways that you actually see changes on the front end along with the the greatly expanded technological improvements on the back end. Yeah, actually, um, it's kind of surprising um, that the upgrade from Snow Leopard to Lion is the same price. It's $29. So a lot of people were thinking, well, because this is a non-trivial upgrade, unlike the Snow Leopard thing, that the price would be more. But apparently Apple really wants this in the hands of, of people that uh, that want it, and it's been made available at a very affordable price. And the the smallest part of this keynote for the Mac section is also the most interesting one considering the topics that we've been discussing over the last couple of weeks as you said $30 upgrade honestly they could make a killing with a $100 upgrade but I'm glad they're doing it for less because these are things that it basically softens the blow of being such a drastic change by being so cheap being so uh, relatively speaking being so easy to just pony up the uh, pony up the 30 bucks in order to get this in the hands of people I think that's a great decision um, but the most interesting part about all of it is distribution. There will not be retail purchasable CDs, so far as they say. Uh, it's going to be delivered via the Mac App Store, just like the Lion developer betas are right now. Uh, we assume that there will be media that comes with computers, and while this is unconfirmed, it's probably going to be relegated to a restore USB drive, much like the MacBook Airs do right now. Yeah, I found that was pretty surprising, uh, especially since having a uh, blank install disk is great. You know, if you if you hose your system for some reason and need to reinstall your operating system, or you put in an extra hard drive, or uh, rather replacement hard drive, or something like that, and or you know if your system's just you know maybe it's running a little slow or whatever, and you don't want to go through all your all your launch D things to eliminate stuff that's running, and just want to start fresh. Um, yeah, it is quite interesting that the Lion will only be available on the Mac App Store, and it makes it makes the the restoring macOS 10 a little bit harder because then you have to put on 10.6, and then you have to go into the App Store and then download a multi gigabyte file for macOS 10.7. And this is the same the same concern you expressed, but it's potentially even longer than that because it's finding your restore media putting it in and getting every, getting the install process started, then invariably hitting software update to actually get to 10.6.7 or more specifically 10.6.8, which explicitly called out uh, Lion, uh, Lion upgrade improvements, and then down, re-downloading the entire Lion installer from the App Store and then running that. Yeah, actually, I didn't even think about that, but that is absolutely true. And in, in fact, the Mac App Store doesn't even work on, you know... 10.6.0 you know it was added on one of those point releases so yeah <laughs> they um they're not going to make it easy but i think you know i think at least they're thinking that oh you know customers are not going to be replacing their own hard drives mm-hmm. or if they are they can they can handle this this is a bit of pain 
people either <laughs> already have a supported computer or they're going to buy a new one and it's already going to be there. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, Line is theoretically going to be, uh, is, is also going to have like a restore partition and stuff um, in case you need to reinstall the operating system. But again, that doesn't help if you actually need to replace your hard drive. So mm-hmm. that's a bit of annoying. <laughs> and since we didn't cover it yet, it will be available next month. Yes, July. So. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next big topic that was at the keynote conference is iOS 5. And they kicked it off with a bang. Yes. Notifications. Pop-ups are dead. <laughs> Took them far too long for this, but I'm glad they, as I've found myself saying quite a bit, I'm glad they took the time because what they have is, uh, well, uh, good artists copy, great artists steal, I guess is the only thing I can really say in this context. Yeah, it's actually surprising how similar the notifications are to Android notifications. I was kind of expecting something a little different, um, but... Um, so apparently when you get a notification, you know, instead of popping up that blue window that you have to dismiss if you want to do anything, uh, there, there will be like a little notification thing right at the top of the screen that pops up for like a second or two, and then it'll just sort of, uh, flip around and disappear. And you can tap that and that will bring down a notifications tray. It looks a lot like the one that that's on Android. And you, so you bring that down you see your various notifications up there. Uh, I think the you know the notifications bar, uh, the notifications tray thing. I mean, it's you know it it's functional, it works. But I was kind of hoping that maybe, you know, instead of dragging something down, that they would have, I don't know, something else. <laughs> and this is this is this is exactly what I was thinking is that implementing something like this is definitely a very hard thing to do, and you absolutely have to get it right. Um, and to their credit, Android really has a wonderfully functional solution. Um, the uh, the notices are unobtrusive, and you can call them down whenever you want in any application you want. Um, I, I'm assuming certain things like games and whatnot are basically going to disable the status bar from being viewable, which should also mean that they that it won't be invocable. But it's it's ultimately speaking, it's a very good manner of going about this. The notifications give you enough context to tell you at least a little bit of what the what the uh, the particular update is, and then when you're ready to review it, you actually can go back in your history. If you if you ignore four messages that all came in in a row that aren't particularly important, you can actually go back through all four of them without invoking the entire application for one and having them all there in their order. Um, easily selectable, easily readable, specifically selectable. Um, I absolutely, you know, it, we are an Apple podcast, Apple Gear podcast, sure. But for the friends of mine who have Android phones, Android devices that I've used, they got notifications right. And Apple definitely made a very obnoxious notification system. And it's nice to see that they went with it. And I think that this is a great idea between it and the lock screen. The fact that the lock screen will actually show your notifications in detail in, instead of just the class that they are, the number, and then the name or phone number if there's any other context. Um, <laughs> as long as we don't see air push, um, I'm fine with this implementation. 
What do you mean? <laughs> Air push for Android, the advertisements and your notification bar. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah the, the Air prefix kind of makes it ambiguous in, uh, in, the, in Apple land. But yeah, as long as there's no – as long as nobody starts doing funny stuff with the notification center and they really might not be able to in, uh, without just creating a notification, it's, it's a good system. And really, I'm very happy to see it. Yeah, I definitely don't want developers to think this is licensed to bombard me with tons of little notifications that I don't care about. So, yeah, presumably, uh, it'll only be as voluminous as, as it is now with current applications. Although there, I mean, there currently is a setting in iOS where you can um, disable an app's ability to pop up notifications. So I'm assuming that they'll just retain it, and if there is an app that's particularly annoying, you can just disable it without. Without issue. Oh yeah, the, the either whether it be notifications globally or the messages, uh, badge icon or sound functionality. If you're really against it, you can just shut off the messages, uh, the messages notification style, and presumably your bar will remain empty forever. Yeah. The other part about this is that, as I as I said, the lock screen is now basically going to show exactly what the notification center uh, drag down bar is going to be. Um, since we haven't explicitly stated it, and for those who haven't seen it on an Android device, basically the status bar with the time and uh, cellular Wi-Fi strength, all that information, you are going to just single finger swipe from the top of your device down. I don't know if this is going to work in landscape. I was just kind of wondering about that. But in theory, wherever the status bar is, you simply swipe down from the top of your device, and when you, as you pull down, a little drawer is going to come down um, and if it if it's exactly like Android, we'll see how it's implemented. If you swipe it all the way to the bottom of the device, it will basically snap in place, and you'll be able to do what you want. If you do it just basically half the way, then you'll you can read the information and then just kind of flick back up, and it retracts the drawer. Um, so the lock screen is going to show this information as well. And one of the really interesting things is that most people know that there's lock screen notification context, where if your device is locked, you get an SMS. It doesn't say swipe to unlock. It says swipe to view. So you're staring at the preview of the SMS. You swipe it. It unlocks your application, pin code or not, and it immediately drops you in the messages application. Apparently, this context is going to be selectable with the fact that you're going to have multiple notifications on the screen, and you're going to be able to swipe the notification, which will serve the dual purpose left to right of the screen of unlocking the, uh, unlocking the device as well as launching you directly into the application that generated that notification. Um, great little addition because multiple applica- uh, you, you pretty much have to as soon as you're going to start stacking multiple notifications on a single screen. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the one I saw was actually, it was like, you have a voicemail, slide to listen, and you slide the little um, voicemail icon, and presumably you would then start listening to your voicemail message. So that's a pretty cool feature. Yeah, very, very contextually aware. That's something Apple has always been very good at. Yeah. Well, I've intentionally tried to keep the number of notifications on my iPhone to an absolute minimum, so I haven't really had a problem with, um, like, notification overload, but this will be... um, uh, a pleasant addition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so number two for iOS five is newsstand, which is kind of uh, kind of came out of the blue because basically what it is is it it's like a, an iOS folder where you know you you tap an icon on the home screen and it brings down a folder of different applications in there. But 
what it is is instead of applications it's publications so you know you got like your popular science time magazine and newsweek and all that stuff you've got those in there and then you just tap on those to read it i it seems kind of odd to me um that it would be integrated into the into the launcher um i mean i would have i'd have assumed that you know you would just integrate that into the ibooks you know just create a separate thing for like magazines or periodicals or something like that and then just have users use that and maybe and maybe you could even do like uh, notifications you know boom you got a new popular science or whatever you can just tap to view it but uh, it's kind of surprising that it's actually integrated right into the the launcher it's a pretty cute idea though because basically that's that's one of the limitations of how uh of how news magazines have to do this right now is that they publish as an app and you either you either get it for free because they just need new they just add new content into the application or you have to i think some of the earliest magazines were like shipping shipping issues as applications which was one terrible for timeliness two terrible for usability after you get more than probably no more than four before it starts to become a real pain to manage anymore but i think this is actually a very ingenious idea for uh for I don't even have a good word to use here for catapulting it into starting is that you're going to have your collection of magazines that uh, the the newsstand application itself is actually just a folder and the magazine to its court, which visually correspond to applications are invocable from within that. Um, I guess it kind of remains to be seen how exactly that's going to be displayed whenever you have more than 12 magazines on the iPhone or 16 on the iPad because the folder the folder interface kind of breaks down there. Maybe it'll be scrollable, pageable, who knows. Um, but yeah, I, I, I honestly think it is a very, very ingenious way of presenting that. Um, and the, the most interesting ability for people who still read periodicals is the fact that iOS will, iOS will now maintain background downloading for these magazines. When a new, if a new uh, issue is published overnight, then when you wake up in the morning, it's there. Uh, I'm assuming they'll present this as a notification on your device, but the fact that it will maintain your subscriptions for you, unlike podcasts, <laughs> the fact that it'll maintain your magazine subscriptions for you and just make things automatically available was they they could not have done without. This would not have worked well without and would have been much complained about. Yeah. So the third feature is Twitter integration. So this is basically deep integration with the operating system for twitter so you get you know you get twitter notifications you get um twitter buttons in like your camera roll and stuff where you can share your photos um let's see tweets from safari videos from youtube addresses from maps uh so basically yeah it's just you know any sort of piece of data little piece of data that you have in your on your on your device that's you know something that the the operating system has um it's likely that there will be a share this on twitter button available to do that as well it was pretty interesting because i actually saw when they were when they were showing off the images of the settings screen where you log in because it's a it's a uh, settings level uh settings level preference that there was the ability to specify multiple accounts which probably just means that when you're when you're in the actual tweet submission screen that they'll I don't know, be a drop-down box to let you select from the different accounts you have. Uh, great consideration for people that have an account and also run perhaps a podcast show applica- uh, a podcast show account or some other of those spinoff uh, accounts people are so so inclined to use. Um, 
it the it looks it's being presented very well a nice a nice flat canvas for sharing whatever particular media you've chosen to or just a simple message tweet itself I think what's also interesting here is is what's not being integrated and that is Facebook. <laughs> I can, you know, I Twitter is very popular, don't get me wrong, but I think a lot of people would like to see Facebook on their iPhones and integrated into their address books and stuff like that and it's interesting that it's that it's not. Yeah, funny considering that Facebook actually has those different classes that they have the uh status updates and they have the link share and they have the photo album which is Twitter, to their credit, is getting more uh, cohesive with their recently announced image store backed by Photobucket, I believe it was. Um, yeah, Facebook is the much more logical mapping idea, and certainly there are plenty of users for it. But Twitter is simple. Twitter is cake. It's nothing. The, the limitation is as much a feature as anything else is with it, Yeah, I, in my opinion. I, I like Twitter. I don't like Facebook. Uh, and I don't trust Facebook, and I don't want Facebook, you know having those sort of tentacles deeply, you know, <laughs> on my, on my phone, I realize it would, it would be optional, but, um, I, I, I don't mind putting in my, you know, Twitter login information and, you know, giving them like contact information and stuff like that, because, um, I think the, the, the fundamental difference, and I don't want to get too far, uh, too far off topic, but, you know, uh, Facebook is, designed as you know something where you communicate between friends and and twitter is more of a broadcast medium where you know you follow people that don't necessarily know you and people that follow you don't necessarily know you and you know everything that you say is pretty much public and stuff like that so once you sort of approach it from that mentality then you know you you know you're not going to be sharing you know intimate personal information on twitter and and due to the very nature of twitter that it's only 140 character messages that there's really not much that you know that's even that you know even if you wanted to that, that could necessarily be uh shared through that so facebook facebook is very designed to take data in and it has a lot of places to put it it has specific places to put each specific type where Twitter is whatever you want to put on it, and that's why applications and whatnot are so extensible to make the ecosystem so popular. Yeah, I could probably talk all day about you know why I don't like Facebook, but I think that's probably another show. <laughs> Ever since the and the last the last little bit that may have some kind of integration that they really didn't announce was the fact that uh, accounts I, I'm sorry contacts in the address book can actually have a Twitter handle associated with them. Um, I've actually wanted this feature ever since Friends was released by uh, Taptivate some time ago, in that whenever it synced contacts, I wanted it to write metadata about the accounts that contacts have been associated with into their particular address book context. That hasn't happened yet, and unfortunately, it's as a result of this iOS 5 upgrade, it's only happening with Twitter accounts. But it's a step, I guess, and yeah. I can, I can def- certainly go with that for now. And unfortunately, this sort of it, it seems to me that this will probably be like the beginning of the end of third-party Twitter clients for iOS because they just will not have the capability to hook into these operating system level um, events. You know, when and you really don't want to maintain two Twitter clients. You know, to have one that pops up when you hit share this photo and another one that you use to check your tweets. So I think it's gonna start pushing users to the official built-in Twitter client. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about the fact that I adore Q status so much just because of how simple it is, but now it's even easier because it's actually baked into the OS into all of the share functionality. Yeah, I didn't think about that at all. 
Well, I have a new, uh, I, I, will, I will shortly be down to 15 apps on my home screen, and I can finally find something else to replace it with. <laughs> All right. Uh, so after Twitter, number four is Safari. Uh, what is there to say about Safari? Um... <laughs> a lot of the improvements that Safari has gotten in the last couple versions on the desktop are now making their way into mobile Safari, uh, namely the reader uh, the reader link that has been implemented into Safari as of, I believe it was as of Safari 5, it had that reader link on a lot of news sites. It's Safari functionality, desktop. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a pain to abstract, isn't it? Uh, Safari desktop for your Mac, as of version 5, when you are viewing a site such as the LA Times, the New York Times, Washington, uh, Washington Post, has a little button in the address bar that's called Reader. You click on that, and it gives you this beautifully constructed, garbage-free version of the site for you to view. Basically like the print view, but not in a ridiculous font and terrible kerning. Um, and that feature is finally making its way to iOS, and it'll be integrated into mobile Safari. Um, I don't... It's very... If you've used Reader since we've mentioned it, it's very similar to this little R button. It's very similar to readability. Tap it, and you get a wonderful display version of the content. Um... The sharing ability is being upgraded so that when you mail somebody, it will you will be capable of sending them the entire article, which I assume is also based off this reader technology that'll give a attractive version, and you won't junk up somebody's inbox with, hey, look at all these ads that accompany this article as well. Um, the The way that I've described it is that bookmarks are essentially going away and being improved drastically. They are calling it reading list, which means that now you have a, you have yet another place to store all the things you want to read and may never have time to do so. Uh, you're gonna when you're viewing something that you're interested in, you can tap on it's still the bookmarks icon, it's still the book icon, and you will add it to your reading list. Um, the uh, one of the essential parts about this is that instead of just being stored locally device, it's actually going to be able to be synced trivially, and we'll cover that in just a little bit of time. The other change that I'm really, really mixed on is that apparently tabs are now going to be consistently present, uh, I believe, at least on the iPad, not so much on the iPhone, but tabs will be ever-present right below the address bar, that entire bar of functionality, uh, instead of being abstracted away behind the windows, tabs, whatever you want to call a button in the bottom right-hand corner. Well, it makes it easier to switch between two tabs, but it does take up a little screen real estate. So Yeah, and it's not so much the screen real estate as much as it is... Um, I think I think one of the pictures we saw actually had the close buttons permanently on them. It just makes me wonder about, you know, inadvertent taps and if you're going to be able to reorganize the tabs for some strange reason. Um, and just, I, I, I don't know, that seems like a really weird change to decide to make. I understand doing it quicker, but... I don't know. Maybe I do a lot. I do a lot less power browsing on my device, which I'm fine with, as opposed to my computer, where I probably have like 50 tabs open right now across two or three windows. Yeah, it's also you know because I believe Twitter has uh, not Twitter Safari. I believe Safari has a limitation of up to nine tabs running at once, and I wonder if that if that limitation still exists and whether or not you, you know you can make more tabs and stuff um, it would almost I don't know. have to be because nine tabs in even either orientation of the ipad that's uh you get nine tabs in there and you're going to have maybe three or four characters of the title in the particular tab uh yeah we'll see it's i don't know a very weird decision to me 
Yeah, you'd have to navigate by like position yeah. in the tab bar instead of actually <laughs> the the name in it. And that's doable, but not easily. Yeah. All right. So number five for iOS five is Reminders. This is this is kind of a bit of a dark horse in the presentation because not much attention was paid to it, but basically it's a to do list for your iPhone and iPad and iPod Touch, and it syncs with iCal and this actually has some really interesting features. Um, uh, for example, it actually has location awareness so that you can set a particular task to a trigger a notification when you arrive at a certain place or when you leave a certain place. So, you know, if you want to remind yourself to pick up some ice cream at the grocery store, you know, you can say, okay, you know, whenever I'm at the grocery store, uh, remind me to pick up some ice cream. Or, you know, if you want to make sure that you turn off the gas on your stove before you leave the house you could set a reminder and you know as you're leaving the house it'll say oh you know make sure you turn off the gas on the stove so i know those are kind of contrived examples but those basically highlight you know some of the use cases for that i actually wonder if this is apple trying to move the geo-based local notifications along that to the best of my knowledge really haven't been taken advantage of um, because it's it's all about that location functionality. You go to the you go to the store pretty often. They usually have a wireless access point, or they have something that uh, keys off your phone to know that it's there. And you set up your shopping list. You chuck it all in as a to do item and bind it to the store. And the next time you're there, since you invariably should have your phone with you if you're anything like us, and you'll get a presumably it'll make a noise or vibrate and to let you know, hey, you have something pertaining to this. You'll probably want to check it out. I, you know, geek speaking and whatnot. I love this idea. <laughs> you, you know, we 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 have a passive conversation. Oh yeah, we need to pick up this sometime. Oh, let's point, let's bind it to the store. Milk store enter done set. And then when we forget about it three days later, and we're walking in the store because we need to shop anyways. Oh yeah, we were talking about getting milk. Let's get that. I think it's a great idea. It might be a little bit of a cumbersome interface if it can only be done on the phone. And the question remains about how you can actually see the locations and how it'll know about them in the first place. But still, this will be this will be uh, fantastic for third party if allowed, and for just a lot of the capabilities that it offers for being con- uh, uh, location contextually aware. Yeah, I actually use uh, an application called uh, OmniFocus, and it has a very similar functionality uh, in that. Um, well, it's actually OmniFocus can be very complicated and you can set it up in enormously um, configurable ways. Um, but one of the things it has is you can set like certain contexts that tasks would be done in. And um, you can actually assign locations for those contexts. So what you can do is, you know, um, I don't think it'll trigger a notification, but what you can do is you can like, you pull out your phone and say, okay, what do I have to do here? And then, and then it will get your location and then it will give you all the things that you need to do at, in that specific context. So, um, yeah, I've been using this, this functionality, you know, with OmniFocus, but it, it, it's, it's definitely going to open up more doors when it's actually built into the operating system and when it's actually, you know, taking advantage of the notification system. So, mm-hmm and able to run at all times without ha- without you having to remember to invoke the particular application. Yeah, although for some reason OmniFocus seems to always be running, so <laughs> <laughs> I guess I I guess they've taken care of that. Um but 
And exactly as I said, the the local notifications aspect of iOS four was one of the uh, was one of the what was it the six poles in the ten I believe that 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 was their their resounding theme for the uh, the la- the big iOS four hoopla, and um, they uh, Omni chose to actually take care of it. Uh, it's more than just the or actually it's not more it's to the same extent as Google Latitude that will automatically check you in when you're within I think it was even like 3 miles or something like that if you're if you're within a particular location you can use the Google Latitude app to say automatically check me in when I'm at this location and um if you have background updating on it runs persistently and will do whatever it needs to because it was built into the operating system that sounds like a battery hog <laughs> And it is. A lot of people talk about that to the same extent as Skype backgrounding in order to take calls with the uh, the VoIP API. And it is, but it's the eternal trade-off. You want to be aware of things going on when you're somewhere, but then you have to turn it on. It's exactly the reason why multitasking in general has been implemented the way that it has in iOS. Yeah, well, let's hope that Apple's found a, a way to do it that doesn't really take away from battery life, so... Maybe maybe they use like cell tower triangulation for it to get a rough idea, and then you know if if they need to know whether or not you're actually in the grocery store, they'll turn on the GPS and say, okay, am I you know where am I actually? I think I read that the backgrounding basically never uses GPS, oh, and with okay. a phone, we'll use cell tower, and any other device, we'll obviously just use Wi-Fi. Okay. All right. Well, the next one, number six, is an updated camera, and I have to say, I'm really excited about this because, first off. It's going to be faster. At least they say it's going to be faster. Um, I guess it really can't be slower than the iOS camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, one of the things I really don't like about it is, you know, whenever I see something that I want to take a picture of, you know, I have to, you know, boom, I have to, you know, turn on my phone. I have to slide to unlock. I have to enter my PIN. Then I have to go to my home screen. And then I have to go to my first home screen that has my camera. And then I have to hit the camera thing. And I have to wait for it to load. You know, a few seconds, da, 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 da. Finally, okay, yeah, it loads. And then I can take a picture. And by the time I do that, what I'm going to be taking a picture of is usually over or done or gone or whatever. So yeah, it's... If it was spontaneous, the opportunity is no doubt passed. Oh, yeah, definitely. So there are basically numerous ways that um, the camera in iOS 5 is going to be um, providing a better experience. Uh, the... The first is that, yes, it's going to be faster, so hopefully it's going to you know load almost instantly. The second is that um, it, there's actually going to be a dedicated camera button on your home screen. I think, I think you might have to double tap your home button or something like that, but um, you'll, you'll actually be able to take a camera or take a picture rather without having to unlock your phone, which is uh, it, it saves you those few steps, especially if you have your pin on. Um, because sometimes you know you don't enter it correctly, and mm-hmm. you know it's like oh, invalid pin. I do that all the time for some reason. I, I pretty my muscle memory has pretty much been trained to type it once, screwed up, and type it a second time correctly. And then there's the times that I accidentally hit emergency call, and that just slows it down even more. Yeah. So this camera, but this camera icon that just sit, that just sits there on the bottom right hand side, which actually makes the slide to unlock range a tiny bit smaller. It's going to be a pretty welcome addition for it to just be chilling right there that you tap. And much like the phone aspect works uh, for iPhones only, um, it's essentially going to be sandboxed into the camera. And I assume, similarly, that if you're in the camera, you hit the home screen, either it's going to lock the device or it's going to suspend the camera and ask you to put in your pin in order to actually unlock it. Um, yeah, there's not, there's not terribly much concern here 
except maybe going through your uh, going through your camera roll if that's allowed and doesn't require pin access. Um, but no, that's not even icons. allowed. Actually, you can only take the photos. You can't even see any other photos that were taken. So, so a bad guy is going to meticulously junk up your camera roll. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Certainly not the worst thing that could be done. Right. Yeah, I think it's perfectly acceptable. Um, I mean, the most thing you're going to have to do is you know delete a few photos that someone you know took on your phone, and you know I don't think many people have a problem with other people picking up their phones and taking pictures so i don't think it'll be an issue (laughs) i remember thinking that when they started this segment that i was i was thinking to myself besides making it faster what more can they really do with a camera application it's a very simple it's a very simply designed application and that's by intention it takes pictures it shoots video it has a couple of uh, a couple of reasonable features like focus um Besides automatic focus, of course, it also has designated focal length by tapping a particular thing on the screen, and then it has the digital zoom, which is just terrible, but that's, that's kind of beside the point. Um, but they they have really come up with a lot of really great ideas uh, beyond being faster and the camera being immediately available. <laughs> tap, tap, tap must hate Apple right now unless they actually worked things out. The volume up button will now take the picture. That's and huge, that's, and that's exactly what Camera Plus got booted for for building into the uh, to their Camera Plus application because it was you know redefining the expectation of the volume button always being for volume. Well, now Apple decided that they wanted to do the same thing, and the volume up button will take the picture, presumably whether it's front or back camera. Um, and obviously, you could do that on any device because they all have volume controls. Yeah, yeah. Well. Except the very first iPod Touch, which iOS 5 is not going to run on anyway. <laughs> uh, they all the have first generation controls. really didn't have volume buttons? Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow, that's scary for something that plays music. It didn't even have a speaker. What? Yeah, you had to plug in headphones to hear oh, stuff well, with the okay, original that, iPod. That explains why there's no volume controls. Then. Oh, I was completely unaware of this. I had no idea. I thought the i the iPod was pretty much with the with the exception of the uh, differently located headphone jack and the opposite side sleep button. I thought it was functionally identical to the uh, iPhone. Otherwise, well, it is now, but mm-hmm. back then there were some deficiencies. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, uh, and really, I, I wouldn't mind if it stayed that way because the built-in speaker nowadays for the iPod Touch is still pretty miserable. But, well, at least at least you can hear something. Yeah, 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 yeah. That helps. If something goes wrong with your headphones, or if you just want a little ambience, you don't have to don't have to worry too much about it. Um, it rather surprised me that they implemented the pinch gesture in order to invoke the digital zoom. Um, kind of makes some sense because I know when I've actually had to futz around with the uh, digital zoom slider that it's been kind of wonky. So having a general interface for pinching and expansion, and whatnot. I think that'll I think that'll come in handy to the extent you actually need to use it. Um, in addition to the automatic focus and the manual focal length by tapping an element on the screen, you'll also be able to lock the focal length so that whenever the scene changes drastically, the autofocus doesn't kick in again and move the um, move the focus start revert your manual focus to something else so you can set a specific focal length and perhaps shoot a panorama a lot easier and not have to deal with it constantly adjusting on you. And lastly, you can now edit the photos you take without leaving the application. 
Changing the brightness, you can crop the photo to a different size, there will be red eye reduction, and the, uh, I call it the CSI feature, the Quick Enhance. <laughs> what does the Quick Enhance do? Um, I miss these details. I'm sorry. It, well, one pres- presumably it enhances the picture quickly. <laughs> Something like that. I, I think that I think that's a pretty good assumption to make. I assume it's basically um, perhaps the uh, two of the features already, and maybe a little bit of other cleanup, kind of like how um, uh, Google Picasa does. That it has a it has a color profile, it has an image profile attached associated with the specific cameras, and it can make a whole bunch of automatic adjustments in order to make things fit a more common baseline, a better standard look to them. So I think Quick Enhance is basically. Uh, do whatever red eye reduction you want to tone the brightness down so it's of, of an average length. Um, just general cleanup that a lot of photographers would do uh, laboriously, perhaps, with the touch of a button. Like mm. Magic, like Apple tends to uh, tends to prefer. Yeah, I think they've got some similar functionality in like iPhoto as well, where it's like, um, I don't know what it's called, but... Uh, yeah, that, so that that's camera. Uh, <laughs> you, you can tell that we are such serious photographers here, not knowing all of these sophisticated things that a lot of people will enjoy with this feature, certainly. But for us, it's just like, hey, I took a picture of this. Sweet. Okay, cool. Well, if you're going to be taking pictures like seriously, like a like an, as a professional photographer, you're not going to be using an iPhone. But. The there there are some that that's certainly true in the grand majority of things. But they kicked off this section talking about how um, in its not even in its class how the iPhone has uh, uh, in Flickr the popularity is higher than the Canon 5D, which isn't a surprise, you know, speaking cost, but it's well above many point-and-shoot cameras and a bunch of other things that you would put in its class as well as some very professional DSLR cameras. Again, that's predominantly cost and the fact that professional photographers are obviously less than the mass majority of people that have purchased an iPhone. Um, But the point remains that there are some people... Look at Instagram, for example. Those photos are gorgeous. Uh, And most of them are taken on the phone itself um there's there's certainly a market for this kind of thing and to have the expanded control the expanded ability to do this kind of thing i think will be very welcome for people who know what they're doing yes okay (laughs) mail (laughs) gotta move on we gotta we gotta get through this uh so they also updated mail for ios and now it has like a rich text formatting you get like indentations um you can actually drag the email addresses between the two CC BCC lines up at the top. Makes it easier to sort of move people around. Uh, you can do actually a full search. So now they're doing a full text search along the entire text of the message, and instead of just doing the subject line and who it's From sent and to, mm-hmm. exactly, yeah. And it does. It also does the search on the server, so you can search for all your messages that way. Uh, they implemented S MIME. So I know a lot of people don't use this, but basically um, what this does is allows you to send encrypted email messages. And, you know, for people that do need the security of sending secure, you know, messages that can't be decrypted between um, your phone and and their destination, then, um, yeah, it gives you that option. So I'm assuming it has some sort of um, way to receive the public keys of other people and to store them on the phone in, in some manner. I'm not exactly sure. They didn't elaborate, but it now it does have that functionality. So 
it's probably That's... mostly an, a benefit ad, uh, added to exchange support than anything else. But generally in the enterprise, I'm sure many people will welcome this. Yeah, definitely. And also, you know, more security conscious people. They implemented the ability to swipe from the device left to right in order to go back to the inbox instead of hitting the top left-hand side to go from a message back to uh, back to the inbox. Um, the dictionary is now... They really only talked about this in context of mail, but I'm wondering if this is actually going to be something... Uh, I believe it was a button alongside the cut-copy-paste strip, and uh, the dictionary is apparently globally implemented into iOS, but they really only showed it as accessible via mail. So we'll see to what extent they decide to do that down in the uh, up in the future. And then, as we saw in Windows 8 recently, they also implemented a split keyboard for iPads, so that if you're a thumb typer on your iPad, the left half of the keyboard is going to be on the bottom left-hand side of the screen, the right half of the keyboard is going to be on the right side of the screen, and you'll be able to grip the bottom of your device and thumb type the entire time. Um, which is perfect for when you're holding the device and don't have a good service, uh, surface to put it down and start typing normally into. Yeah, it's worth noting that that's not actually a feature of mail. It's just a generic, you know, if you have an iPad, um, any place that you have the keyboard, you can actually sort of pull it apart and then thumb type mm-hmm. on either side if you want to. Mm-hmm. And the one, the second uh, bullet point to get the biggest applause of the show was the continuation of the post-PC era. Your iOS device is going PC-free. It is time to, metaphorically speaking, cut the cord. The device is now able to activate itself by doing nothing more than entering your uh, Apple ID. Uh, Software updates are going to become over the air, and they will be Delta only, so you won't have to download the... I think we're butting up against 2 gigs nowadays for, uh, for OS updates. And the point is that they're doing as much as possible to make applications work as well as they can without the need to have a computer. You can now create new mailboxes in mail. You can create entire new calendars if you have a CalDev account for uh, for the iCal application. And there are a couple of other applications, but they've they're the the point to make is that they're trying to let you manage accounts much more without needing a computer. So this device can become the center of your productivity. Yeah, this is actually huge because I've, you know, the iPad is a fantastic device, but I've sort of shied away from actually recommending it to like my grandparents as a replacement or, well, yeah, as a replacement for a computer Um, because both my grandparents, you know, um, they, they don't really use their computer a lot and it's, you know, it's many years old and it's, it's very limited in what it can do and i'm confident that that neither computer will run the latest version of itunes so if you know you say oh get an ipad and they take it home and they open the box and they hook it up you know assuming that they actually manage to understand that they're supposed to do that then um then they're not able to activate it because they're not running the latest version of, of iTunes and it's not even compatible with their devices. Mm-hmm. So being able to actually activate the compute uh, the, the iPads and other iOS devices like iPhones directly um, without needing to use a computer is huge and the ability to sort of manage those those other features like um, uh, contact groups, calendars, that sort of stuff. Um, directly on the device instead of having to do that on the computer is also huge as well. And um, the the third big pillar that we'll get to in a minute, um, iCloud, 
uh, makes this a whole lot better. Yeah, especially between multiple accounts, uh, multiple devices of the same person, and even in some ways multiple people. But again, right. we'll get to that. Um, this is one of the pl- this is one of the places where they were very explicit to call out the continuation that many of these features are Wi-Fi only. You know, an over-the-air update is not going to happen over the cellular network, despite a lot of other phones doing it. It's going to happen over Wi-Fi, but it's only it only needs Wi-Fi now. You're going to be able to do it anywhere, and this is a this is a really beneficial step. Yeah, actually, um, if you plug your phone or other iOS device into power, like you would say, for example, to charge it overnight, then. Uh, your phone will, or, or or other iOS device will actually connect to your Wi-Fi network and download all these necessary updates. So uh, you don't even have to prompt it to do anything. If it's connected to power and you're in the range of your Wi-Fi network, then it'll handle all this automatically, which is fantastic. I'm going to have to actually start carrying around just my chargers because I don't necessarily need to charge it to a, uh, tether it to a computer so much anymore. Yeah. Game Center. They had a few updates for Game Center... Uh, you can now buy apps directly in the Game Center app. Um, you get like friends of friends discovery and recommendations and stuff. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Game Center. I guess because I don't ha- I don't use it with anyone, so I don't actually have any quote unquote friends in there. But and whenever I post my my high scores on any games that I play, then uh, typically there's like lists and lists of fake scores at the top you know someone that got like four billion points on tiny wings it's like really no no that didn't actually happen it's <laughs> and, not fake just because they beat you come on kyle <laughs> it's, it's like physically not possible to yeah, do it there there are definitely a lot of very uh ridiculously high scores on mini games which makes me wonder how they actually pulled it off because it's not like there's a it's not like this is shared with a computer where you can actually do this kind of thing but yeah i certainly i've certainly seen a lot of those max possible scores that you're talking about yeah apparently like on a, on jailbroken phones and stuff you can actually trigger you know you can actually send fake scores oh, so. i didn't even think about the jailbreaking community eh, yeah. yeah okay yeah they're ruining it for the rest of us unfortunately <laughs> and the thing is i mean obviously fake scores are easy to get rid of but you know if you if you say well you know i got three hundred and twenty thousand points on tiny wings you know is that fake or is someone just really, really good? It's hard to tell. I don't even think Apple lets you lets developers uh, modify things granularly. I think they basically have the ability to reset the whole board. I think I heard about that in uh, Taxi City, but I don't think the extent of moderation even exists. So, yeah, the, the biggest talking point in Game Center was the fact that, like the uh, voice over IP and the game uh, game matching friend fi- uh, opponent finding capabilities that they're also implementing built-in turn-based gaming into game center so things like scrabble and all the various flavors can now hand it off to game center and pretty much be hands-off anymore they don't need to they don't need to run their own server for a lot of these basic functionalities uh it remains to be seen if zynga is going to take advantage of anything like this but i'm fairly certain like hasbro is going to update their version of scrabble to actually allow you to have this and this is this is nice. That means a lot of board game, a lot of board game developers are going to be able to throw their ideas into the ring and not have to pay too much money to set up a server and worry about it because Game Center is going to offload everything. It'll it'll offload the matchmaking, it'll offload the finding your contacts to play against, and it'll offload the actual state of the game. Okay, well, 
I will reserve judgment until I see it. But if there's if there's fake scores in there, then you know, to me, Game Center has failed. So <laughs> that's a little uh, a little end all be all. But well, okay. when it, well, whenever I go in there and I see that you know there's these all these obviously fake scores in there, um, and that's all I can see, then I have absolutely no need or desire to go into Game Center. So then my suggestion is to stop looking at the leaderboard, start looking at the achievements, and be glad at that number ratcheting, ratcheting up and up and up. I suppose. <laughs> well, for me, playing games is not really a social activity anyway. I mean, I, I play the games just because I like to play them. I don't, I, I don't have any need or desire to, you know, play against other people. So. Mm-hmm. All right, so this brings us around to number 10 for iOS, and that is iMessage. First off, terrible name. (laughs) Yes, agreed. Yeah, Um, well, apparently this is an extension of the existing, like, SMS and messaging app uh, present on the iPhone, and they're basically bringing it to the iPad and the iPod Touch, and in lieu of actually being able to message on, on cellular networks, users on those other devices uh, basically can text with with their Apple IDs. So you don't need a phone necessarily to send a message to someone that has an iPhone, which is good because, you know, sometimes if you have kids and stuff and you don't want to give them like an expensive texting plan or, or cell phone plan, you can just give them an iPod Touch and they can text their friends with iMessage. <laughs> I message. Yeah, that that's going to be that's going to be one of those things that we can just kind of interject. Let's go to I message so you oh, can see God. this picture. It's a, yeah, I know. Um <laughs> pretty pretty interesting, pretty nice that they're finally bringing in the rest of the uh, the iOS gang into the into the uh communication world. Um a lot of third-party app developers are now crying as a result of this, but that's kind of the progression that's going on. Things that are a good idea get implemented into the base. Um it's I made a remark that it looks like it's built on XMPP, which I believe a lot of the push notification services, they had a couple of references to leveraging the push notification service they already have. But this really seems to go above and beyond it because not only is it SMS and MMS style messaging, so it's basically somewhere in between the SMS world and the email world, and yet not either of those things, but there's going to be delivery and read receipts. Um, You'll get typing indications from between users. Um, they talked about having secure encryption of the message content. Uh, we, I don't believe they really said that it was a feature, so they were probably saying that this is secure by default. It will be protected by default. Um, on, an, uh, on 3G-capable devices, the transmission can be sent over it, but of course all it has to have is Wi-Fi, and that's of course global to all iOS devices. Um, one of the more interesting things that because this is their own messaging service for those people who have multiple devices, all of your messages will now be synced across all messages. So if you're doing something on your iPad at home, you're talking to someone, you need a, you want to walk away, you have an iPhone, you have it on you, um, continue that conversation because all of the same messages that you've been sending and receiving will be available wherever it's been invoked on any particular device. I yeah receiving definitely I'm not sure with sending um, presumably they will sync that because that's what the iCloud is all about we'll get to that um, yeah this basically looks like a a way that Apple is going to start trying to compete with BlackBerry and their BBM service <laughs> although I don't really know much about it other than it's 
basically a real-time instant messaging kind of thing between Blackberries. The um, the whole delivery receipt, read receipt, typing indications, it seems a little invasive to me. Like, you know, if someone, especially someone I don't know, sends me a message and they know that I that it's been delivered to my phone and that I've seen it, you know, that's not necessarily something that I, I would want them to know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a little paranoid. <laughs> And it's it's really uh, – we don't know the extent of opt-in or opt-out or what have you if you will be able to shut off a feature like that. Uh, but essentially, after configuration, and presumably there won't be very much, it's not terribly different from using a third-party app like Beehive and having a Jabber account paired to it where all of these features are capable with most Jabber clients out there today. Right. And then the, – so those are the, the big 10 features like they continue to do, the, the big – meme the big choice of uh choice of theme for the entire presentation was the 10 features for all of the uh for the three particularly the big three that they were presenting on um and then in addition to their infamous feature kind of like a feature mind map that spreads around the icon um they talked briefly about a couple of other things but didn't really go into detail um one of the most interesting things being airplay mirroring that you will be able to mirror the output of your ipad 2 wirelessly no idea how that's working but a lot of people cheered for it when they said it and they didn't go into any detail whatsoever humongous tease um as we said there will be wi-fi sync to itunes and it will be potential apparently it will be schedulable to take place overnight while it's charging and the phone isn't doing anything else um all of this all of this gets quite a bit better and we're getting there we're just about there (laughs) the develop there is a uh, developer seed of ios 5 today and I wish that we still had a uh, a uh, paid developer account. And <laughs> if this wasn't such a terrible idea, that's one of those things that I'm pretty sure people are going to do anything they can to get on a paid developer account or pay a hundred bucks for to get that today, because that's 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 unbelievable. I did not expect them to have it that short term. Soon, definitely for the developer seeds, but to have something available already today, amazing. Yeah, back when they were doing the developer previews for iOS 3, uh, there was actually a bit of a... um, Basically, what would happen is you can have a certain number of iOS devices on your developer account. Um, And what people would do is they would buy developer accounts and then they would sell basically activations for specific phones on that account. Mm -hmm. And so you just give them their UDID and, you know, in exchange for some money, and then you're able to install and activate the the developer version of iOS on your device. You know, however you obtain it, you know. <laughs> um I actually did that back when, you know, I again iOS version 3 because I really wanted the tethering feature. Um I don't think I'm going to do that now just because I'm okay with iOS 4. Maybe things will change in the next few months and I'll really want some feature in iOS 5, but for now, I'm all set. Mm-hmm. I'm excited, and I, I would love to see it today, but ultimately I agree. It's certainly not worth the hassle, and it certainly can be a hassle because I remember one of the big things is for people that aren't actually developers. They hit the developer forms and say, this is broken and I need it. How do I downgrade? And the answer was, you don't downgrade. Right. And people went through some very painstaking steps to be able to, but no, you don't downgrade from this change. 
Yeah, pretty much um, your phone will refuse to install a an older version of the operating system. So, yeah, it's pretty much impossible to downgrade once you've upgraded. Um, there, I mean, there are ways. It's kind of hacky. Uh, it involves like recovery mode and sending like, you know, specific instructions to the phone, stuff like that. It's it's complicated. Um, I think there are actually are topics about it on Ask Different. So, you know, at least they worked with uh, downgrading iOS four to iOS three. I'm not sure if they'll work with iOS five, but yeah, there there's at least stuff available for for doing that. Mm-hmm. All right, so that sort of wraps up iOS. And the big thing, the big new announcement at the keynote today was iCloud. And basically, your PC, well, all right, I got to back up a bit. Um, About 10 years ago, Apple came to us and they said, your PC is going to be the center, the digital hub of all of your your stuff. So they had this diagram that had a Mac in the center and then they had a video camera attached to it they had a a palm device they had uh, a digital camera they had a bunch of stuff that was attached and the the mac was the center and that that was their strategy for many years that was what led them to develop the iLife suite and and stuff like that um well today they are shifting the center um, the Mac is no longer the center. It's actually one of the spokes. And the center is now iCloud. And what this means is that iCloud basically is going to act as a as a central um, hub for photos, music, that sort of stuff. And we'll, we'll explain a little more as we go on a little more. I got to admit, I am pretty disappointed with the name. Um from the the little murmurs that we heard about the Lion developer betas and upgrading MobileMe to Castle, um, I was pretty fine with that. And then when they officially announced that they were going to be speaking about iCloud last week, it's like, uh, uh, <laughs> iCloud and iMessage, not the um, not the hardest <laughs> things that they had to take time to come up with. But screw the name; it's all about the content. Let's go. Okay, yeah. So basically, um, this is uh, superseding MobileMe. Basically, they're taking the existing features of MobileMe, contacts, calendars, and mail, and I guess they're making them a little better. Um, the you know they for the past few years, MobileMe has done the wireless syncing for for mail, contacts, calendars, and stuff. So all that still works. Uh, the big fe- the the big thing about MobileMe is that it's now free. Instead of paying $100 a year, you're able to just use it for free, which is great because my MobileMe account expires in June, so yay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they, they've added a few other uh, features as well. So they added um, the App Store and the iBooks um, services where you can actually go through and you can look at all the apps that you have downloaded on different devices and stuff with that same um, user account. You can do the same with the iBooks, and you can re-download stuff if you want. And you can even um, you can have it set so that when you buy an app on one device, you can have it so that it automatically downloads that app or book or whatever on all your devices. So that's that's good. Um, iBooks has has had this feature for a while, but it retains the feature of being able to uh, keep track of the place where you are in your books, so that you know you can stop reading on your iPad and pick up on your iPhone and vice versa. So. 
So that's all. That's not not anything new, but it's it's something that is made a little easier um, with with uh, iCloud. Yeah, the big the big recurring theme here is that when you make a change, it you you have an Apple ID paired with your with your phone with all of your iOS devices. So when you make a change, it syncs it. When you make a change, it syncs it. There's no there is so much time that you don't have to plug in one device, press sync in iTunes, plug in the other device, press sync in iTunes. And hopefully I, I feel that I've actually had some sync conflicts as well. So this should be this should be a step towards greatly simplifying all of the all of this runaround. Um, you make a change to a contact, it's going to be pushed up into your account in iCloud. You change an event in a calendar, it's going to send that event change up to your account in iCloud. One of the more interesting things about calendars as well is that you can share a calendar with a specific user, like say, for example, a husband and wife. And you make an event for a soccer game and you set a 15-minute alarm um, a 15 minute in advance alarm you share that with you, you you the dad share it with your wife and you can either change the time and both users get the update you set the alarm and you both get the alarm um, it's it's distributed it's wireless it's fast and it's pretty much immediate and that's the point that they were trying to make with this um, they <laughs> they made a big deal about mail getting pushed and changes to mailboxes getting pushed but since mail is pretty much all server side that's not any different but it's also done in your uh me uh, on your can't really use the word mobile me anymore but it's your me account your username at me.com account you make a change it's propagated to the server you make a change it's propagated to the server it's taking that paradigm and putting it in place for everything for all of these services um iTunes, the App Store, and iBooks all have the ability to view your purchase history, and when you purchase, you can send it to a device, and explicitly, all of your devices. So, you're using it from your computer, you buy an application, you say, send it to, in my case, my iPhone and my iPad. Um, it, it, that's, that, that's the recurring theme here, is that you find something you like, you want it, you send it to all of the devices, hands off, it's there within however long it takes to download the particular media. The Photos application is becoming Photo Stream. You take a picture, it gets uploaded to the cloud. This one, ta this one is quite a bit more interesting and quite a bit more elaborate because when you take a picture, it becomes immediately available in your account in iCloud. And then there are facilities for being able to view this on any iOS device. On your Mac, I'm assuming tightly integrated into iPhoto. On your PC, with a yet as of un, as of uh, as of so far unannounced software that will put it in your pictures folder on Windows, and also on an Apple TV. So any pictures you take will just be one of the Apple TV the photo headings, and you can grab whatever's paired to your account. Um, the details that they have released so far is that iOS devices will store the last 1,000 photos, and all of them on your Mac. And additionally, photos will be stored on the server for 30 days. The intention basically being to get the picture, for, uh, to get the photos from your iOS device to your computer, and you have a 30-way, uh, sorry, a 30-day window to do that without syncing uh, physically, without syncing with the cable. It'll be done. It'll be retained on the server for 30 days before expunging it. And then again, the last 1,000 devices will, will be. Uh, wow, the last thousand devices thousand photos you've taken on your device <laughs> the 
the last 1,000 photos you've taken will be, or they, they seem to hint towards, I believe, even ones that you've changed and whatnot. But the last 1,000, we'll say, picture events uh, for unique pictures will be stored on your iOS devices and then sent to your Mac as well. So there's a little bit of a gray area of how maintenance and storage is going to work, but the point is to get it to your computer. The computer is still prevalent here. The server is the broker and has a couple of other features built into it to uh, facilitate the transfer. Um, they were very explicit in saying that a lot of this is going to be Wi-Fi only and not 3G. This was one, PhotoStream was one of the places where they did the same thing. Um, Backups. They didn't go into too much detail, but they basically said that all of the changes that you make to your account are going to be automatically uploaded so that when you have a new device, you log in with your Apple ID, you get all of your applications. I presume this means you get all of the documents, all of the storage attached to those applications. Scarce on details, so kind of hard to say, but they've talked about a 5 gig repository for backups and a fair share of other media. Um, iTunes, the, uh, iTunes in the cloud, much like the App Store and iBooks, you are able to view your purchase history and um, without requesting your transfers to be made, your purchase to be made available to you again, you can re-download anything you have previously purchased at any time on any device that is authenticated to your account. Um, big change, gathered a fair amount of applause, and again, like the App Store, like iBooks, you purchase something, you can immediately send it to a device. You can immediately send it to all of your devices. iCloud is free. MobileMe is going away and iCloud is free. That's that They revisited that point a couple times just to make the point that they're doing all of this brokering, all of this exchange, because it's free. And that's presumably because they're making all the money on the actual transactions you're making. They're making their money with the applications you're purchasing, with the, with the books you're buying, with the magazines you're subscribing to, and the music you're downloading. Yeah, I'd have to say that probably the biggest thing for me with all of this is the, the photo stream. Um, now, I mean, there, I realize that there are those certain limits, like you know, the the server only will only hold images so many days, and and stuff will only be on your iOS devices for a certain number of days. Um, I'm hoping that what this that at least the basic functionality is that as long as your devices have enough connectivity, that just photos that were taken on your iOS device. Or rather devices um, will be automatically transferred to your Mac and kept there forever in the library. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically, we know now that our devices take us away from our computer. So the point is to get the content back to our computer primarily for organization purposes. Um, but then because everything is so internet connected and whatnot, we have a simple way of doing that without without the cord, without the cable. Right, and I'm also hoping that it's the full size, full quality images, and I don't know. Did they say this was they were going to do this with videos as well, or are we still going to have to manually? Um, they kind of hinted towards it because when they were talking about PhotoStream, they were talking about not only pictures you take, but pictures you import via the camera connection kit, and movies basically have to come with that. And I think that's also one of the reasons why it is Wi-Fi only and not 3G. Yeah, I can just, you know, even even over Wi-Fi, transferring a several hundred meg video is going to take a long time. <laughs> yeah, my my maybe hour recording came out to, I think it was just shy of 200 megs. And certainly nothing to scoff at. Hmm. Hour recording, what did you record with? Just with my iPhone. 
I was at huh. a show and I sat there and I recorded a uh, uh, concert that a buddy of mine was performing in, and it it's a bit it's a little bit above 150, a little bit below 200 megs. Do you have an iPhone four? Yes. Hmm. Because my my videos are typically like much larger. Like, I think I. I ran out of space when I recorded like a 20 minute video, you know, it was like many several hundred megabytes. It's like 700 megabytes for like 20 minutes of video or something wow. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately the compression on the iPhone, you know, they doesn't have a whole lot of processing power to really get those file sizes small. So, you know, it, it stores them fairly largely. H264, the exactly. on chip, uh, on chip encoding and decoding. Yeah. Uh, 720p. It's takes up a lot of space. Hmm. Maybe it's just that the uh, venue was so dark and whatnot that there wasn't that it could compress it down to nothing because there was so much there was so much darkness, so much data that it could essentially just throw away. Yeah, possibly. But yeah, um, if if I can get my photos on my Mac without actually having to physically connect my my iPhone, then I think I'll probably you know I won't ever connect my iPhone. <laughs> I didn't even realize that we actually skipped over a point completely. Um, documents in the cloud uh the oh, way yeah. <laughs> yeah the way that they demonstrated this was that with the iWork series of applications available for iOS devices uh exactly as we've already already driven the point home you make a change in pages to a document on your iPhone and you can immediately view it in your iPad on next invocation or actually sooner because that's that's the point they're making it's done in the background so that when you open it back up it's available again um, one of the things that they mentioned as a part of the documents in the cloud section was the iCloud sharing SDK, I believe they called it. And it was basically the ability to allow third-party applications to take their data and stick it and, and, and be able to have a conduit for leveraging your account to store this information. Um, there was a lot of talks about, well, Dropbox on the on the iOS is now dead in the water because there's this built-in facility for drastically simplifying the storage of applications, um, and will remain to be seen. Uh, it'll remain to be seen to what extent this works on desktops as well. They have said that it'll be Mac and PC capable. Um, not something that they really went into the possibility with because they limited to the because they limited the demo to just iWork applications but a ton of potential here and because it's something that's just going to be built into the uh into the SDK into the goodies that Apple provides anyways there's a lot of possibility that a developer just has to come up with yeah um I mean I think that you know obviously the Dropbox app on iOS still is very useful iCloud doesn't even come close to touching any of that I mean, with it, with the exception of the documents thing, but that's even, you know, you still need to use iWork, basically. Um, but you're right that with the key value store, a lot of the um, advantage for using Dropbox is sort of like a, a persistent synchronization kind of vehicle for apps that didn't really want to maintain their own service for doing that. They'll probably just stick with uh, this this API instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the abstraction that i've been making in mind is that we know that an application um on ios documents are bound to a specific application basically a document sandbox and so to give anybody the ability to let uh to store stuff online that is guaranteed to be there is uh, hopefully people that have just kind of had local storage uh local storage applications like we were talking about the carminder application some episodes back 
Um, I would love to see that updated so that we can actually get it out by means of iCloud because if you have an Apple ID, which you have to have to do all of this, then you have the possibility for this information to be stored in iCloud. I think it's also a good idea for everyone to re-examine the security of their Apple account passwords because back when, you know, it was just, I don't know, it started out very small, like, you know, you're just your iTunes password, basically. And eventually it's sort of grown into this very centralized uh, login to the Apple ecosystem. So if you're... If your Apple account password is not as secure as it should be, my recommendation is to change it because it's only going to get more important. And for what, but for what it's worth, an iTunes account, all it was good for was, you know, buy music and having a funding source attached. Right. Hopefully, the intrinsic nature of credit card information being protected by just a simple email address and email looking address and password, uh, people have. People have taken the necessary precautions to make it to the to, to make it significantly strong to the extent that they need. But yeah, absolutely, it needs not be said for any indication that reviewing your password to make sure that somebody's not going to get the keys to the kingdom. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, my my um, Apple account actually started. Um, it was a long time ago. There were actually there was this promotion that Pepsi was having where there was these little codes under the caps of their of their bottles. And you plug that into iTunes and you get a certain amount of credit or maybe you get like to download like a song or something like that. I remember those. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how my I, my uh, Apple account started. And, you know, I've been I've been using it ever since. Yeah. I'm, and I, my, my iTunes, my Apple ID is still at Mac.com because I've had it since well before mobile me came around. And since the ID doesn't change, uh, irregardless of the email address itself. Um, yeah. That's still what I use to this day. Exactly. And there's just one more thing. (laughs) iTunes Match. Songs that you may not have necessarily bought, but if you had a CD and ripped them yourselves and and put it as a part of your iTunes library, now can be essentially redeemed for the iTunes uh, equivalent. 256K AAC DRM-free files. Now that you have recovered a hundred bucks a year from Mobile Me, why not chip in twenty-five of those a year in order to let iTunes examine your library? And if a song you have ripped before matches anything in the iTunes catalog, it will be automatically upgraded to a two hundred fifty-six K AAC version DRM free. Yeah, this is pretty huge because there are a lot of people that have existing collections that um that you know the iTunes in the cloud it sounds nice with the whole purchase re-download multiple devices thing but they just they don't have most of their music bought through iTunes so for for them it's pretty much useless I'm one of those people and I'm sure you are as well Mm. Uh, I'm kind of an outlier because I have a lot of stuff that's not uh, not mainstream media. It's not general iTunes catalog kind of things. I'm sure there's going to be a couple of surprises in there because of some overseas labels that have published their stuff in the U.S. iTunes store. Um, I'm still looking forward to it, and I'm sure there's a fair amount of stuff that I've just kind of collected over the years that would surprise me to to be able to actually get it back in my library with beautiful artwork and lyrics and probably near, higher quality pretty much completely across the board. Think of all those people that have had Beatles compilations for as long as they have before it made inroads to the iTunes catalog. 
and now they are. I'm kind of curious exactly how they're identifying the songs. I mean, you really can't go by just the the name of the song because you know you then you could just rename the same file, you know, multiple different names, and oh, I suddenly have all these songs in my account. Music Brains and Last FM and a bunch of other people. Uh, a bunch of other services excel in this kind of thing. It's it's music fingerprinting. Uh, music uh, Music Brains uses PUIDs and previously used TRMs. Uh, I know of an open source project that uses they call them AcoustIDs, I believe. Uh, Last of M has their own proprietary fingerprinting that they rolled out uh, about a year and a half ago, I think. Uh, th- this is this is this is the same kind of thing that uh midomi sound uh, soundhound and shazam go off of and this is this is something that's just kind of had a humongous take up in the in the last two years or so basically the way that they presented it is that there will be some kind of an application probably itunes itself that scans your library and if it's not something that's bound to something in the actual itunes catalog it'll fingerprint it and if the fingerprint matches something, the, the whole point of it is something that doesn't, that corresponds to the same time and the same information, but isn't obstructed by quality. So again, if in my case, and I know I have a bunch of old songs probably on iTunes that are 128K MP3, I seriously would not mind having those upgraded to 256K AAC and still remaining DRM free. It's probably the best part of this. Um, this is what all the news was about with regard to Apple uh, signing uh, signing new agreements with the labels is the ability to backport this information without just being a dumb, you know, current quality music file store. Right. And it's also worth mentioning that if you have stuff in your library that it is unable to recognize or that they don't have in, in their catalog, you can upload that. Mm-hmm. And that'll, you know, that'll go into your iTunes match cloud thingy majiggy they were surprisingly scant on details about the extent of the uploaded content because they 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 talked about it because they compared themselves to amazon cloud blocker and google music and they were showing that their price point is much more competitive not to mention the fact that they can actually improve the quality of your files with probably no loss of space um but they didn't really have any details on streaming on playback anything of the sort um Perhaps that remains to be seen, but it still came as sort of a surprise. Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm kind of disappointed. I was really expecting a streaming solution. Um, I've mentioned on previous podcasts that I have like 80 gigs of stuff on my computer that I would just love to just offload to the cloud. Um, and iCloud seemed like the perfect sort of opportunity to do that. But the the whole workflow was like, oh, well, you know, you you know if you want it on these devices you can download it and then listen to it i'm like well you know i really don't want to download it i just want to listen to it and i'm willing to do that over my 3g connection i think that uh, they're a little i don't know if it's due to their agreements with the, the cell phone carriers but they are very reluctant to let me use the 3g connection that i'm paying for mm-hmm. you know if i want to send my photos up over 3g I should be able to do that. Or if I want to download, you know, huge podcasts directly to my iPhone over 3G, you know, I should be able to do that uh, without that annoying 20 megabyte limit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is just probably more of the same in that they probably have some deals with the carriers that basically say, well, um, we will do what we can to minimize the amount of data that's actually used by the phone. Yeah, and it's the internal fair use argument about who... 
uh, you know, they, they, we can't create something that's going to burden their network. And they're very respectful of that because it's their... <laughs> Apple is just playing in AT&T's backyard, so they can't, you know, they're not going to become a, a wireless carrier overnight. They probably never will. I don't think that's a uh, that's a uh, market that they really want to get into to the extent that they usually do to completely take over the entire proceedings of what they're uh, of what they sell. But I, I certainly understand what you, what you're saying. I certainly agree with what you're saying. But if it is really true that data that smart cell phones smartphones are actually obliterating the carrier capacity, I. I prefer people to do what they need to do to actually allow me to use the cellular functions in the first place and not cause some kind of a potentially bad outage. Um, right. Yeah, it's 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 a large amount of trust and that's not always something placed in the appropriate uh in the appropriate area, but it's I certain we we certainly know the complaints about the quality of AT&T's network especially when the iPhone really exploded in popularity. And I do understand that there's a limit to these things, uh, reading the example of Coors Field and how terrible its reception is, and just knowing these places around town where, because of the dense concentration of people, that even just the sheer number of AT&T phones, not even necessarily smartphones, can cause these problems to happen with the little bits of data that they do. So with a, I love the fact that the devices are Wi-Fi capable. I remember when I had a Treo and it didn't have Wi-Fi. And getting things that couldn't be put on an SD card to my computer was painful. But now that this thing has the ability to tether physically, can Wi-Fi onto my network to be present to my computer, and Wi-Fi and or 3G to access the broker, as I'm calling it, iCloud. Um, I don't know. The options are available, and leveraging Wi-Fi, which is more and more prolific by the day, is not a bad thing, in my opinion. Oh, no. I mean... Using Wi-Fi, that's, predominantly, that's predominantly fine. Preferring Wi-Fi, um, yeah. You know, and I can understand. You know, if your phone's you know constantly you know sending stuff over three G or getting stuff over three G that you didn't ask for, that you know that might be undesirable. Especially but, with the uh, disappearance of unlimited plans nowadays. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. But I think that you know the complete inability to override that limitation in any capacity is what's kind of frustrating to me mm-hmm. well you could always jailbreak your phone they have the uh, uh, they have the 3g enabler that you can do to basically trick it into using it yeah um just saying I'm not a, just saying I'm, it's enough I'm, I'm not a big fan of jailbreaking my phone <laughs> yeah. and it gets really annoying when like you know there's an update available and you apply the update and it deletes everything on your phone and relocks it and stuff i've done that to myself and not even jailbreak can relate it on accident so yeah yeah yeah. it's quite a quite a conference a lot of stuff announced yeah i didn't i didn't expect this to be a two-hour i don't know why i didn't expect it to be a two-hour presentation but it uh it surprised me when i got up looked at the clock one o'clock already hmm well there goes the day pretty much yeah yeah here it's already 6 p.m. <laughs> and I'm just sort of, you know, I, I'm I'm coming off this whole WWDC thing, you know, reading all the stuff, seeing the 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 live streams and stuff. It's just, it's it's a huge event, and uh, it's really exciting to to sort of see this stuff happening in real time. 
Yeah. And hopefully we'll be able to grab somebody that's actually in California right now, actually attending the workshop to see if there's any other exciting news from any of the workshops, any of the other conferences that aren't uh, generally streams, generally uh, widely available, such as the keynote. Exactly. Or, you know, maybe some stuff that, you know, it's it's sort of tucked away on the developer pages and it's not really like in the public consciousness, you know. Mm-hmm. Hopefully a lot of these things that I've talked about that weren't really uh, elaborated on to a technical extent will actually be. And we can really start to uh, get the get the entire picture of a lot of these features here pretty quick. Right. Well, I think that just about does it. So I will say that this has been the Ask Different Podcast an unofficial podcast about Apple created by members of the Ask Different community. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at askdifferent.net. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for Ask Different Podcast, or there's also an RSS link that you can, um, that you can see on our show notes. Thanks for listening.